Well, today the passage we're in is Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. Yeah. So Genesis uh, 19, if you guys want to be turning over there, uh, just wanted to say this now, especially if you're visiting, this wasn't the passage I necessarily chose. Uh, you know, this is where we are at. And amen, it is a powerful passage. Uh, it literally is fire and brimstone. So we're going to bring it today. Amen. I'm going to bring the heat. Got it. Because there is a lot here to cover. A lot here to cover. It's waiting for you guys on that one. A lot to cover. Yes. I'm glad you guys are all with me. Genesis 19. You know, uh, today's title of the sermon is City on Fire. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How our city here in Hampton Roads, whether in Virginia Beach, Norfolk, or anywhere else, Chesapeake, Newport News, Hampton, list off all the major cities, we live in a city on fire. And we're really going to be able to look at a great um, example that God has placed in the Bible for a very specific reason. And of course, we see that even the prophets use this example as as a warning to the people that they need to understand just how mighty and how powerful God is and how serious he takes our lives and the decisions that we make and the sin that so easily entangles us. So we're going to go ahead and pick up in Genesis 19 and verse one. It says the two angels, sorry, um, came at Sodom in the, in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. You know, here we've seen that Abraham and Lot have already parted ways. You know, Lot has chosen the more fertile grounds. And we see earlier on that he was actually a shepherd. He was a herdsman and slowly has made his way into the city. He has left what God has instructed him to do, to keep going and keep moving. And I'm sure Abraham also had conversations with him over the years. And here we see that he has moved into the city. And he sees these visitors, these two angels coming up and he bows before them. This is not a necessarily a sign of that he understands what's about to go on. This is just a custom here that he is um, displaying here for these men. You know, he has an interesting interaction with them. Traditionally, visitors would come and they would stay within the town square. And we see that a lot here leads with them not to do that. He won't let them. Maybe he knows what is happening already within that city. Maybe he has witnessed behind his closed doors what goes on in the city of Sodom. And we'll keep on reading. In verse 3, but he insisted so strongly that that 
they did go with him and enter his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate it. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men. For they have come, to, come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they said. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved, toward, moved forward to break down the door. You know, it's crazy to think that it's been only 400 years from the flood. 400 years, roughly. Now, I'm sure it would have been in recent memory. It would have been passed down. Right. That this is who God is. And this is the reason why. But here we see this intense, crazy scene. Where, in all intents and purposes, they want to gang rape these two men. Wow. To the point that they probably would not have survived the night. And it says that all the men from the town, young and old, every single one, was beating down the door, was surrounding Lot's house, demanding that he bring out these two men. Now here, there is a little lesson here too for fathers. It says young and old, the sons watched their fathers, imitated what, what they did. And now here, from the youngest to the oldest man, demanding that they bring out this man. You know before we move on, I want to make sure that, you know, as, as a society, even as uh, Christians, we can look at this passage and say, yes, God hates homosexuality. That's what this passage is about. Let me just warn you right now, that is not what this is saying. It is not a cardinal sin. It is not above any other sins out there. It is the same sin as any other. Same as your lying, as your deceits, as your arrogant thoughts. There is no different from the evil that goes on inside your mind that nobody knows about than the sin of homosexuality. They stand in the same spot of judgment as you do. And they still have the same need for Christ as you do. In Ezekiel 16, we see that, you, you, please don't turn there at this point. It says that, we see that Ezekiel says that the people of Sodom were arrogant. Overfed, unconcerned, and didn't help the poor. And that is why God brought judgment. Not just the homosexuality. In Jeremiah 23, it says that the reason God came there and brought judgment was because of their adultery and they were living a lie. It says this is the reason why God destroyed Sodom. Good point. We see here that Lot, he can't hold back the individual. He can't hold back the mob. They're so incensed with their desires that they are literally beating down the door and pushing him through. Let's continue on to verse 10. It says, but the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. 
They struck the men who were at the, uh, at the door of the house, young and old. They wanted to make sure that we knew there was everybody. With blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Son-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you. Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-law, his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this, uh, get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his of his wife and his two daughters and led them to safety out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as he had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Stop right there for a moment. We see here that the angels let Lot in on what's about to go down. And they plead with him. You got to leave the city. Grab all your family and go. Just get out of the city. We see that Lot turns to his son-in-laws and pleads with them. But unfortunately, probably because they had never heard Lot speak like this before. They had never been corrected or urged by God or by Lot and the ways of the Lord that they think he's joking. They don't even take him serious. Imagine what thoughts pass through their minds. Here in a couple paragraphs. When they see the destruction coming. I wonder what they thought about that conversation with Lot. I wonder what they thought about. Man. I wish I would have listened. And the angels tell Lot and his family to go. Don't wait. Later on it talks about how Lot was instructed to go to the mountains. But he begs. The angels send me to a smaller city. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to go all that distance. Don't make me go so far. So the angels allow him to go to that smaller city. Let's skip on down to verse 23. By the time that Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from, from the, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I lost my place. From the Lord out of heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all the living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before with the Lord. Previous to this, we know that Abraham stood there with God, pleading for the city. And we're going to talk about that a little later on, but that's what it's referencing here. Verse 28, he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, sorry, I have trouble with that word, toward all the land of the plain, 
and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when, the Lord, uh, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. God destroys everything in his judgments. A hundred percent, it is total. He even makes the point that the vegetation is even destroyed. Every living thing, including the plants, destroyed. You know, there was, there's this disc here. It's called a planisphere. It says Sumerian clay disc. And it talks about the stars. And we can date this back about around the same time as Sodom. And what's on this is it talks about an asteroid that comes close to the earth, does not strike the earth, but explodes in the atmosphere. And thus showering flaming parts of that asteroid. And it's creating a heat wave of 400 degrees. Giving individuals third degree burns all over their body. Slowly to die. And we can, they can, with computer models, they can match up the stars that are listed on there and give us an approximate date. An exact date, in fact. If you are willing to go along the lines and say that, hey, this is talking about Sodom and the, and the destruction that, Lord, that the Lord brought about it. It gives us an exact date. June 29th. 3123 BC. So here in June, we'll be able to celebrate the 5,140th birthday of the destruction of Sodom. But this was a real event. This really happened. God really brought down judgment upon these cities. You know, we got to be careful, church. We got to be careful to think. To not distance ourselves from what was going on in these cities. We're a lot closer to what was happening in those cities than we think. If you think about it, you have a window to Sodom in your house the second you turn your TV on. The moment that you open up your laptop, you have a window into the sin that surrounded that city. Here's one of my wife's favorite shows. I love Lucy. I want you to take note of something here. Sever beds. Because that's the way married sleep. Right, teens? No. Sever beds. Why? Because they thought it was too racy. To have the two of them in the same bed. 1951. Now what you can find on Netflix is blowing my mind more and more. It's worse than Showtime. Cinemax. There is no ratings on some of those shows. You can watch whatever you want. There's sex, nudity, violence, drugs, you name it. It's all on there. You have a window to Sodom and Gomorrah within your own home. 
Now, I believe the problem with our society today is that we have become our own moral compass. What we decide is right is right. Nobody can tell me otherwise. I came across this article and it reads, but the truth is America is not in a decline anymore than any other time in history. That's helpful. This is just lazy religious speak as in us as Christians saying that we are in a moral decline that seeks to paint the picture of everything being terrible so we can name drop the last days and leverage the ensuing fear such language invariably creates in suggestible God-fearing folk. Only everything isn't terrible, at least not more terrible. I don't believe that we are slowing or sliding off into the, um, uh, sorry, abyss, despite what some religious people say. I'm out here every day and I see um, heroic, compassionate, reckless acts of beauty all the time. I see and speak to lots of, in, of inherently good people doing their best, slipping and then getting back up. We're all flying and falling simultaneously, gaining and losing ground and doing it again and again. I reject the myth of our downward spiral because I know how hard so many others and I are working to get this life right and to live well. I don't believe I am in personal moral decay. And I imagine the same is true for you. Which is the point? There have always been people who will do horrible, despicable things. There still are. There have always been people who live with unthinkable kindness. This is still true. And almost always, they are the very same people. Here we see this article basically saying, Hey, live the way you want. It's always been bad. Don't worry about judgment. No, but when you walk outside of your door, when you turn on your TV, when you open the app that displays your news, you see it. I don't have to preach that to you. I'm sure many of you have heard plenty of sermons that describe the world. So we're not going to talk about that so much. It's a messed up world out there. But the standard has become our own desires. Our own impulses. It's whatever I feel like doing. Whatever I want to do. And that becomes a standard for our lives. We don't see the consequences. We don't care about the consequences because it's about me and what I want. You know, we see here in, in the text that Sodom, the men of Sodom are taken over by their desire for sin. They're almost possessed in what they want. And nothing will stand in their way, whether it be lots or the door that was shut. You think about the lust in your, in your heart. You think about the greed. You think about the selfish ambition, the anger, the hatred. And how much that dominates some of our lives. Where it becomes this, you want to stop. I'm, I'm going to give you that. Right. But we feel that it just pushes us forward. You know, society is messed up. I coach a soccer team for my youngest son. And this past week, I had this five-year-old come up to me. And practice hadn't started. I wasn't even having a conversation with him. 
He comes up to me and he says, hey, I don't see my sister anymore. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be careful with this one. I, I, I don't really know where he's going with this. He's five. And he says, you know, daddy broke up with mommy and took my sister and lives in another house far away. And now I don't get to see my sister. And he's standing there and I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, bud. That, that must be rough. And he kind of looks at me, shrugs his shoulders, and walks off. And I'm like, for a five-year-old to understand that. So much that it's hurting him that he wants to talk to his soccer coach. I've only coached him twice. I don't even think he knows my name. The world is a messed up place. But here's the thing. You can blame society, but guess who makes up society? You. You think about, you can point all you want at the world around you, but you think about what goes on behind your door. What goes on within the four walls of your house? Think about what if those visitors, those angels, showed up at your house? Come on. Would they feel at home? Would they feel comfortable? Or would they feel like the destruction is going to be raining down on your domicile? Too often, I think we can look and say, hey, I'm not that bad. I don't touch, I just look. I don't partake, I just dabble. Ezekiel 16, it talks about that they're arrogant and unconcerned. You know, but for God, Ezekiel 16, verse 49, it says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. And we think about the arrogance that we have in our lives. The re- and that is the reason why we don't listen to God. We don't want to listen to what God's word has to say. We don't want to submit to his word. It's almost as if we're calling God's bluff. Let's turn to Luke chapter 17. I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to be a little longer than I normally preach. Is that all right? You guys, honestly, you can't do anything though, right? And I have no points so that you can't count them down to three. You know you do it. I do it. You do it. They're like, it's on number two. I got one more. I'm going to keep you on the edge of your seats. All right. In verse 26, this is Jesus speaking. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day of uh, the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on a housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. 
Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will persevere. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. We'll stop right there. You know what? As you have, we have no excuse. We know what is going to happen. We know what God's judgment is going to be. But yet some of us are calling God's bluff. That, and then unfortunately, judgment will come as a surprise. You'll be carrying on your life as normal. Going to work. Raising your kids. Counting up your investments. Figuring out how much longer do I have till retirement. And judgment will spring upon you. Whether that be Jesus himself coming back or perhaps that God takes you right now. And your life will be over. Then all of a sudden your lust, your gossip, your lies, your bitterness, your pride, your worldliness will be judged before God. Even what goes on in your heart will be brought before God, brought into the light. And you can say all you want that God's not going to judge that. But guess what? He is. You know, the people of Sodom, they could have said, hey, I didn't know. God didn't give me a warning. No, but we have no excuse. We can't claim ignorance. Second Thessalonians 1, it says, God will even punish those who do not know or those that do not obey. You know, judgment's gonna, gonna come to us all. 100%. It will be total. No one will be spared. We see here that Lot's wife was a step away from safety. A step away. And she turns back. You know what that tells me? That there is no middle ground. There is no trying. There is no, I just gave my best effort and it wasn't there. There is a clean line of, hey, you're following God or you're not. You're looking forward or you're looking back. There is a clear line. For us today, church, you got to stop debating. Right. You got to stop thinking about and trying to figure out what am I leaving and is it worth it? You got to stop wrestling. You got to stop going back and forth. For some of us, that's been going on for years. You know the truth. You are without excuse. Judgment will come. We got to stop being so arrogant. We got to stop following the desires, the impulses, and thinking that we are the standard for what is right and what is wrong. We need to submit our lives to God. You know, judgment will come and the city will burn. But the question is will you burn with it? Or will you escape the flames? Let's go back to Genesis 18. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Genesis 18. This is that conversation that we talked about that Abraham and God have while they're overlooking the city. 
Then the, then the Lord said, oh, in verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stayed standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous and the wicked? What if there's 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not judge all the earth? Will you not judge? Uh, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Then the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare it for the whole place for their sake. We'll stop right there. And the outcry is so great. We see here that God hears it. But here's something I want us to see. He comes down because he wants to see for himself. He comes down from heaven to have a personal look. He comes down himself to see the people of Sodom, to see for himself. He could have sent the angels just to destroy the city, but he himself comes down. And in verse 25, we see that Abraham gives an interesting proposition. He basically tells God, I know you're righteous. I know you're just. And I know that you will spare the righteous. He says, God, if you can find those 50 individuals, I know you will spare the city. Because that is who you are. You cannot destroy the, un the righteous with the unrighteous. You know, but for us today, church, not to be your bubble buster, but you will never be righteous. You will never achieve a point where you will be spared from judgment. You can never get there. You will still have punishment, wrath. The judgment still looms over top of you. And the flames are coming. It doesn't change anything. This right here, you guys know what that is? Whoa. We're going too fast. It's a fire blanket. A fire blanket that you would throw over yourself to escape the flames. You know, in 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about how Jesus will become sin for us. He will become your sin. Therefore, being he will clothe and wrap you in righteousness. Not your own, but his. Thus allowing you to escape through the flames of judgment. To wrap his righteousness, to wrap that fire blanket around you. To make your way out. Now our sin is still there. There's nothing you can do to change that. But Jesus was one to take on your sin. So you could be wrapped in righteousness. I've heard a lot of people say, you know what? I just barely want to get to heaven. I can just sneak in. I just, you know... Man, I just want to get in. That's all. I, man, my life is tough. My discipleship is rough. Let me just get in. Drop the bars. Just get in. 
But let me tell you this, no one barely squeaks into heaven. You come in with the full righteousness of Christ. You have confidence to escape the flames and to go through and to see God himself and approach him with the same confidence that Abraham had. Even to have conversations like this. Because the righteousness of Christ is wrapped around you. And all God asks is that you follow him. All he asks is that you listen to him. That's how we can escape the city that is burning. You know, in Genesis 18 and verse 26, Abraham is negotiating for Sodom. And we see that he slowly goes through from 50 to 45 to 40, makes his way down to 10. Makes his way all the way down to 10, but stops. Why? wonder why he stops at 10. Some have speculated and said, hey, well, because if he gets down to one, then that would have to be Jesus. Which, I can see that. Then Jesus would have to take on the judgment, the punishment for our sin. But you, the other side of that is not that those 10 righteous people will somehow make the rest of the city righteous and that God's judgment won't fall on it. I believe that God... If there was 10 people there, God would expect them to be able to change the city. If they truly are righteous, they would be able to persuade the city to turn away from their sin. And perhaps there might be 50. There might be 100. God's expectation is that 10 could influence the rest of the city. And we see here that Lot wasn't able to do that. Lot was a good, a good man for all intents and purposes. And even in 2 Peter chapter 2, we see that Lot was bothered, distressed over the sin of Sodom. But he failed to influence the city. He failed to rescue those from the judgment that would come. Even his own family didn't take him serious. Probably because he never talked about God. He never talked about their lifestyles, their choices. He never called him to the righteousness that God demanded. He probably watched his neighbors knowing what they should be doing and how they should be living. You know, as Christians, we live in a sinful world, but you're meant to do more than just be a good person to pull up a lawn chair and to watch the destruction. The city is on fire. We're meant to save as many as possible sent by God himself to save as many as possible. But have you become a good person? A religious blend into the city around you. You know, a boat in water is good. But water in a boat, not so good. You're in this world, but you're not of this world. You're not meant to blend in. But unfortunately, our morals start to move. You know, later on in Genesis 19, we saw that Lot does something, in, I think, that makes most of us cringe. He offers his daughters. Basically, to be gang raped, probably to the point of death. He, when times get tough, he's willing to move his morals a little to the side. To please the people around him. 
To not get into confrontations. To avoid the hard conversations. Too often our morals shift to please others. So that we blend into the world around us. Because we want to please those. We don't want to be set aside as an outcast. Or that one individual among, in, in the city. Who's preaching the word. You know, tolerance. Is a word that's been thrown out quite a bit. This actually was the Google image yesterday. I don't know if you guys saw that. You were on Google. It spells out Google. And look, we got a little spot right there. On your, on your right. See it? The cross. We got, we got the L. We got in there. But the idea of tolerance is that, hey, you should just accept everybody. Don't challenge them. Don't speak out against it. Don't try to help them. I think a lot of us have bought into that. We bought into the fact that, you know what? God is love, so therefore, I got to love everybody. I agree with you. I think you're 100% right. But what you don't have to tolerate is the sin in their lives. Because guess what? God sent you to help change it. To help save them from the fires of judgment. And too often it said, you know, society throws out that, you know, God hates gays. God hates this. God hates that. Absolutely false. God loves everybody. But he can't tolerate sin. And that's why he sent you. The other reason that they didn't listen to Lot was honestly because they didn't respect him. They didn't respect him as a man. They didn't respect what he stood for. Because I'm willing to bet that his life wasn't respectable. You Christian, you may not have been able to influence your office, your home, your family, because you just look religious. There's no respect. There's no difference between you and the rest of the world. And therefore, they don't listen. Now, what makes your life different? What makes your life attractive? It really is going to be your radical commitment to the word. Come on. It's going to be your deep love and passion for the word of God that forces you to live a righteous life. That forces you to be compassionate to your neighbors. And to want to extend the grace that God so easily provides. Come on. Unfortunately, we look too much like the world because we love the world. We get a treasure here on earth and we're, we're looking back. Just like Lot and his wife. Hard to be able to pull away from that. And one of the hardest things, one of the biggest challenges, and I'll be honest with you guys on this one. When, they, when, when Ed um, approached me and said, hey, we want to um, um, appoint you. But this is what it means. You've got to be willing to go anywhere. And that was difficult for me. It still is difficult, I'll be honest. It's hard for me to think about leaving my house, leaving my lawn that I spent so much time. Kind of frustrated. The city dumped these huge culverts right in the middle of my lawn. Just redoing the sewers. I was like, ah. But anyways, um, you know, it's to be able to think about, man, Jeff, you gotta be willing to leave everything for the gospel. That's a that's a tough one. It pulls on me. 
You know, what pulls on you? Do you have treasures here on earth? Is that why you look more like the world than you do a Christian? Is that why you're blending in? I think some of us have lost hope. I'm totally honest. We've, we've lost hope that we can change the world around us. We've lost hope that our family can become disciples. We've lost hope that our co-workers, our friends, will actually be willing to even come to church. You know, as a, as a kid, I grew up in Los Angeles and, you know, it was one of the hubs, if you will, of the Churches of Christ, the International Churches of Christ. And uh, we would see a map like this quite often. Remember K&N? Yeah. Mission, Mission Minutes? Yeah. Sam actually uh, changed my diapers as a kid, so that was my claim to fame. Um, this guy who was... It was the host. Anyway, um, and we would drop these pins right on the, on, on the different cities and say, hey, this is where we're going. This is where the, where the new church is. <laughs> I think for us, as a movement, we've lost that hope that we can influence the world. Come on, Jeff. We've lost that dream over the years. We have lost the reality that God wants you to change the world, to save them from judgment. Because guess what? Your city's on fire and so are the rest of the others. On that map. Have you lost hope? That you can really make a difference. I remember thinking as a kid. Seeing that. My, my reality was, was like. Hey it's just a matter of time. Before the president's a disciple. And he starts sending out churches. It's like it's just a matter of time. It's going to happen. Like I literally remember sitting there. Thinking yep. Tomorrow, next day, I can't wait to go to the um, White House and have a diva. It's going to be great. Family diva. Me and the president. We're going to do um, arky arky songs and talk about, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. I'm like, but have we lost that vision for the world around us? Have we lost hope? But God has sent you here for a purpose. The judgment is coming. You are the herald. You are the voice in the dark. You are the salt of the world. You are the city on a hill. You know, Lot preached and warned in the last days. But it was a little too late. Too late. Nobody listened. You know, our city is on fire, church. God's wrath and judgment, it's coming. And it consumes. It is a fire. It does not hold back. You know, at 111 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when you start to feel your skin feel pain when it, when it gets closer to, to the heat. First degree burns happen at 118, redness and pain. Second degree, you get the swelling and, and the blisters. Third degree burns. Burns through the full thickness of your skin, charring it, cracking it, perhaps even turning it black. But if you're burned alive, your skin actually cracks and shrinks. And then the, what happens is, is through those cracks, the fat comes out and becomes fuel for the flames. Wow. A body can burn for up to seven hours. But hopefully by that time, you've already died of shock, blood loss, 
or heat. That you don't have to feel the pain. This is what's coming. This is what is coming to the world. This is what's coming to your neighbors, your co-workers, even some of you. This is what's coming. This passage was meant to be a warning to us. To turn back to God. And to listen to His word. And to change our lives and to live for Him. This passage is always meant to be a warning. Because our city is on fire. So let us be able and willing to flee from the flames of judgment. And to be able to take as many as possible with us. Amen. Thank you.